This week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Southwest Indian Foundation's Catholic Pueblo Revival Internship Program. If that sounds interesting, it is. Listen to the whole show to find out more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host, Pillar Editor-in-Chief J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar co-founder Ed Condon. And I've got some things I want to talk about this week, and uh, you do too. Uh, I I'm actually no. I I was just thinking to myself that you haven't even given your usual head fake of what we might talk about. So I'm coming to this episode more than usually blind. I have no idea what's coming. I'm giddy with anticipation. This is my excited face. Well, can we start um, by Ed by talking about a personal problem of mine? Would that be okay? Of course, JD. <laughs> I mean, it's not banter, but it's if a- this show is about anything, <laughs> it's, it's a- about your personal problems. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I really ought to. I mean, with this one, I really probably. It's a, how long is a rash supposed to last? No, I'm kidding. It's not about. <laughs> it. Um, here's the deal, Ed. We are recording this show on Thursday, and the reason we're recording this show on Thursday is because tomorrow or tonight, I'm traveling to um to Oakland to a symposium of an organization that I'm a part of called the um, College of Fellows at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology. Uh, the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology is a graduate school run by the Western Province of Dominicans in Berkeley, California. And a few years ago, they invited me to be a part of something called the College of Fellows, which is this really interesting, diverse group of people, some of whom are academics, some of whom work in sort of media like us, some of whom work in the church, some of whom work in government. There's architects and – I mean, it's not just theologians. There's p- economists, all kinds of interesting people. And uh, the idea is to bring this group together um, uh, periodically, annually, like f- to have some sort of engaging sort of cross-disciplinary conversations about the life of the church and then – to share some of that conversation with the students at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology and the broader sort of theological community in Berkeley. And it's cool. I love being a part of it. It's it's very awesome. I was honored that I was asked to be a part of it, and I love it. You're part of a college of – a fellowship college yourself at the Catholic University of America, and I hope you I hope you like it. I love it. It's We have – we meet up and we have drinks and great dinners, and we talk about the people that we think are – I'm wrong about stuff and yeah. about how we're right about stuff. It's, yeah, it's right, right up my alley. Well, mine is super interesting because it, they have intentionally built it to be what you might call viewpoint diverse. So there are members of it who 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 I've come to regard as friends who do not agree with me or us about anything. Um, okay, and then when you say they don't agree, are they wrong? Yeah, <laughs> I have. Well, this learned is why things. viewpoint diversity is bad. I no, mean, I in mean, the I end, I have they... learned things. I have, I have. My perspective has been informed and fleshed out by people who have other perspectives, and hopefully, their perspectives have been informed and fleshed out tomorrow. But he, by my corrected, apparently. <laughs> but here's the problem <laughs> that I have. So, um, this is the first meeting of the College of Fellows in several years because COVID, and then COVID lasted um, in California for. Uh, a long time. So I think we met in early 2020. Roughly an election cycle. Yeah, right. And then we didn't meet in 2021. And then we didn't meet in 2022. And then at the DSPT, the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, there was like some flooding or something. I, I don't know. There was some problem. So we didn't meet last year. But when last we were supposed to meet was 2022, and then COVID kind of canceled it with the California wave, second wave COVID. I was supposed to give a, a, a lecture, not to the College of Fellows, but to the to the a broader public lecture about sort of Gaudium et Spes. And Ed, I could have sworn I prepared this lecture. You remember that I was working on it. I read all these books about Gaudium et Spes. I read all these articles. I was talking about Gaudium et Spes. For a period of time, you wouldn't shut up about I it. I wouldn't yeah. shut up about Gaudium et Spes. But here's the thing. 
so they said, okay, well, we didn't do it in 2022. We didn't do it in 2023. We're going to do it in 2024. We're all coming in February. It's going to be great. And we're going to have the same program, which means JD's going to give the same lecture about Gaudi Mitzvah. Great. I thought I'll just dust it off. Except I uh, can't find it. <laughs> so uh, I found, as you know, my notes for it um, or some notes for it and a little bibliography, but I can't for the life of me find the lecture. And it's on Saturday morning. I, I thought I would just, you know, dust it off and read it, but uh, it's on Saturday morning, and I uh, am—I uh, guess you would say—host, uh, right? I mean, you've backed yourself into a bit of a corner here. Um, I think I have. I—I um, I like to have a good, a good, clear weekend to prepare the 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 rare, and by rare, I mean like quinquennial eventualities that I give a a public address of any kind. Um, how long are you talking for? Well, I my sense is that I am expected to talk for about an hour. Now, listen, we have been talking for five minutes and I haven't said anything yet. So I I I, I well, you're I presumably feel talking to professionally. Of, you do. Um, but it occurs to, to me. To Dominicans, Ed, to, to Dominicans and to graduate students, to people who yeah. have taken They're notes and will say, some... Well, you said this, but Shilabek said this, and what do you think? And I'll say, I haven't read Shilabek since graduate school. Look at me. Yeah, you're um <laughs> I know. You're in trouble. If it were a canonical topic. Well, the, but the, okay, so this is what I was going to say. And this is this is your, if you'll forgive me, your failing is you are a bit of a polymath. Um, and you and you certainly present as a polymath. I think it's just a veneer, though. It, that's for you to say. Um, <laughs> but you po- polymath might be better phrased as windbag, and now it's catching up to me. It might be. I I never present myself as an expert on anything other than a very very narrow either. strain of penal law in canonical form, and as a result, no one's ever interested in what I have to say, and so I don't yeah. have to. I don't have to do things like give long speeches, except occasionally to canon law conferences, and I'm never ever ever asked to deliver an hour on the pastoral constitution of an ecumenical council. <laughs> Which is great because I haven't read it in its entirety since I was an undergraduate, probably. Yeah, um, I read it two years ago. I just did. I just. I'll be damned if I know what I did with that paper. In in many ways, JD, what you are expressing <laughs> is what the entire church has been doing since the promulgation of Gaudium et Spes. You have a vague idea that <laughs> it's there and that it says some things that you're, you know. You're sure good, um, and you, you know you thought about it at the time, and you know you know it definitely said some stuff that you 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 thought was highly significant, and right, you really yeah. had to do something with for that. For better or for but, ill, there's stuff in there, yeah, yeah. And but buggered me if I can remember what any of it is, but it's not going to stop me from talking about it. I mean, this I mean, is look, the experience of the post conciliar church. Yes, there are I, documents. No, we can't remember them. We know their names. We have a generally favorable impression. So let's just talk about them anyway. This is I'm the spirit reporter. of Vatican II. Embrace Ed, it. People say stuff and I write it down. I'm an editor. People file <laughs> paragraphs and I make them better. Um, I'm I can do that, but those things don't require a fundamental knowledge of hardly anything at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why now, you here's insist on having a life outside of work is beyond. I me. know. I know. It's but a but I like the DSPT. impediment to relaxation. I, I think it's fun. I like it. I'm glad to be a part of it. Uh, I think it's good. I just um, I'm here's what's the, here's what I'm worried about now. There are going to be people 
I, you know, a, a number of people are coming to this. Like I think they said a couple hundred people or something like that are coming to this. <laughs> and so- <laughs> Is this going to be live stream? Can I watch it? No, no. No, and so, um, but there Do will I be know pod- anyone else on the board. Maybe they can hook me up with a live stream. No, so there will be people who are podcast listeners who probably will be planning to come to my talk, and they think right now that I'm kidding. Like, oh, oh, oh he's <laughs> going to say this and then pull out a nice footnoted text. No, <laughs> I uh, thought that I had a footnoted text in my Google Drive or on my hard drive. I don't, and, uh, I, and so here, we, here we are, uh, friends of the show. If you are planning on attending. This lecture by JD. First of all, I would I would welcome I would welcome any video footage of the event you would be able to provide me either live or after the event. And I would strongly encourage you to come prepared for a scholarly discussion <laughs> and to ask JD No, don't ask me scholarly questions. Closely researched questions <laughs> about the that. text of Gaudium et Spes. Don't do that. Don't do that. Just just add, just say like, hey, it, you know, if you're a podcast listener, you know what I know about. So if you come to this lecture, do me a solid. Ask him about as things I'm he doesn't know talking, about. Right. As soon as I'm done talking, just be like, hey, man, could we pivot to Rupnik for a minute? And, and I, I promise my question will relate to Gaudium et Spes. And then just ask me a Rupnik question. Or like, hey, man, could we pivot to the new book six? I do know about canon law. And if I could figure out a way, which I have not yet, to do a sort of canonical assessment of Gaudium et Spes, I would do that. But well, I think you should just you should just t- just do a politician's thing and say you know pivot to the question you want to answer and say <laughs> what is the what is the real joy and hope of the church today antinomianism no that's not the joy and hope that's the threat the real joy and hope is the new <laughs> book six yeah right exactly that's right these are the concerns of my mind. I I do have some thoughts about Gaudium et Spes what I don't have are them systematic what you don't have is any knowledge of the <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about some other things we don't know that much about, if we can, because okay. that's what we've <laughs> Okay. So I want to talk about – I knew – and I know I should – like I, I I, have on my desktop open right now some articles from scholars about Vatican II. I'm just assuming you're not going to be seen at work tomorrow. No. Well, I know tomorrow – so I we talked about this a while ago. Tomorrow I'm kind of off because I have um, – so that so Friday is the day of the sort of internal meeting of the of the College of Fellows, and then Saturday is the public disputatio, and so uh, so uh, it's a disputation. No, I just I'm just, you have to have an argument with someone. No, I'm just being funny. Uh, well, uh, what it happens is I give a presentation, and then two people give a response to my talk about Vatican II, and Ed, one of them is like uh, America's greatest living um, Thomistic scholar, Russ Hittinger, like a very serious person. And the other one uh, is a Dominican named Father Michael Sweeney, who is also an extremely serious intellect. And I uh, – Why would you agree to this? <laughs> I don't know. I was more optimistic in 2022. I was young. I th- believed I could do anything. Wow. <laughs> this is hubris. This is what – this is this is hubris followed by nemesis. This is – wow. This is something I have else, some, man. I, got, I have some jokes. Oh, that'll that yeah, but they're not going to fill an hour. Thomistic academics, famous for their senses of humor. Well, you know, Doctor Hinder, he he's oh no, he's funny. great. Yeah. He he is the director of the of the we're um, both connected fellowship to institution to which I am a member at CUA. Yeah, we're both you and I are both connected to basically Hinder connected institutions, which is kind of nice, I suppose. Yeah, but I mean, 
He asks me to to drink confusion to our enemies with Manhattans. I <laughs> he doesn't ask me to get up in front of a crowd of hundreds Why? and talk about you something about which I have no idea. You're more idea. well read than I am. You're smarter than I am. I'm Everyone not well read. I'm not shows. well read at all, and I don't <laughs> pretend to be. I I am not. I'm the opposite of well read. I I am a monomaniac. I I I devour voraciously things only about the narrow lanes that interest me, and I I don't look outside them. I think That's that how I will stay get sane. up and start by saying something like, you know, the older I get, the less I am sure about anything, especially like why this I agreed to topic. this. And then I'll just do selected readings. I'll read I'll read some excerpts. Is there anything in the news that has been encroaching on your field of vision this week that you'd like uh. to talk about? Our uh, first, I want to talk about uh, something that I that that uh, has been on my desk because I've been editing some work from our Latin American correspondent Edgar Beltran. Our Latin American correspondent Edgar Beltran, by the way, about a year ago, uh, got a a very cool opportunity to study for a, a, a doctorate in philosophy uh, in in um, the Netherlands, and so he has been living in the Netherlands while working as our Latin American correspondent as a freelancer for us, doing some other freelancing, and then working on a doctorate in philosophy. So he's always so. Over the past year, he's been our our Dutch Latin American correspondent. He's he's logged up some air miles. His frequent flyer mile accounts because he's going back healthy. and forth all the time. I mean, he's you know he's constantly yeah. His phone bill too must be if he's not using WhatsApp very heavy because he's constantly on the phone with with sources all over Latin America. But uh, we sent in a in a, uh, in a in a in a fit of peak. We uh, we sent our Latin American correspondent Ed on a trip last week, didn't we? I don't know that I'd say it was a fit of peak. I, I did. Yes, I was mad at him for not filing on time, and I told him he had to do this. You sent him to the Arctic Circle. <laughs> we sent him to the Arctic Circle, yes. No, Edgar's been in Finland. Um, he, he's been hanging out with the new bishop of Helsinki, and mm-hmm. um, he then uh, – did he – I think I'm saying this right. He went to the northernmost parish in the world? Well, we thought he went to the northernmost so – we, so we sent Edgar to um, – to Finland, not because we were mad at him really, but because he had this cool opportunity. And he spent uh, some time with the new Bishop of Helsinki. The Diocese of Helsinki covers the whole of, of Finland because there's not that many Catholics. And he spent a very interesting two days at the Cathedral of um, Helsinki, kind of, which is a super international place because it's the priests are from all over and the people are uh, from all over, both immigrant communities and refugee communities with a very small sort of um, – Finnish, Finnish uh, Catholic population. And then he also went I to- I think they prefer Suomi. I th- aren't those a particular kind of uh, Finns? No, I, I don't think so. Suomi is the Finnish for Finnish. Oh, okay. Well, you don't say. Well, I do say. I may be wrong, <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. See how many things you know about? No, I don't know. I could have made that up for all you know. You know my motto, often in error, never in doubt. Just I was thinking about the Sami people I don't who talk are... about things like the Second Vatican Council to a learned crowd. I talk about things like Finnish, which even most Finns barely speak. I mean, this is like, pick your spots, man. Do you want to come? Do you want to, we could do it together. Come to no, Long Beach together, you are, baby. Nuh-uh, you are not taking me down with you. <laughs> okay. Yes, Suomi is the Finnish word for Finland, but uh, I was thinking of the Sami people, you know, the indigenous Sami people. Oh, they're who are different. At the top of, yeah, they're different. Um, they're super interesting culture, and Frozen 2, I suppose, was about them, but um, they're not. Okay. So Edgar went up to this parish that is one of the northernmost parishes in the world. We couldn't, we thought we could verify that it was the northernmost parish in the world, but we think there might be a parish f- somewhere further north in, in, in maybe in 
Icelander something. I, I don't know. He, he was working but on near as, it's that. near as damn it. I mean, it's well, 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 well above the Arctic Circle. I sent you at a very cool picture of the parish illuminated by the Aurora Borealis. That was the, I've never been more envious of someone in my life than realizing that Edgar could see that. It's, it's remarkable. It's shockingly beautiful. And I'm calling it the most Northern parish in the world because I, if it, <laughs> if it's not, it's, you know, you, you can, I, I would like someone to come forward and contest it properly. Um, That's all I'll, I'm, I'm from Paris for the North. That's what I'll say. Wow. Okay. That was racist, but all right. <laughs> no, but it's, it was, things like this, it's a sort of, it's, it's a sort of stylistic, you know, it, it is a set, it, it is, it can, it could be argued to be, it is spiritually the most Northern parish yeah, in the world right. or close enough that you could, it's like my, my great uncle who. The headline of the story will be the parish at the top of the world. And, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like my uncle, my great uncle's toilet. What? I'm realizing now how you're hearing that there should probably be some context. Um, I had a great uncle, God rest his soul, a, a wise and holy man who lived in the southwest corner of Ireland in Dingle. And and he would tell anyone who would listen that he possessed living out as he did on on the point on the cliffs. Of the Dingle um, Peninsula? Yeah. Uh, he, it's he a funny boasted, place for a toilet story, isn't it? Well, he boasted as having the westernmost flushing toilet in Europe. Oh, wow. Which Yeah, I defy know, anyone to say that otherwise. Well, there is, as you just pointed out, Iceland. Um yeah, which is arguably Europe and is I- certainly further is, west. Iceland is politically Europe, but don't you think it's if you have to put well, it? Well, I continent. pointed out the house that was visible from his house that appeared to be further out on the point and further west once, and he responded to me, "I boasted of the westernmost flushing toilet," <laughs> which I thought was kind of a slight on his neighbors, but yeah, you know, that's right. Uncle wow. Hugh said what he said, and wow. I, you know, yeah. Um, Edgar was over in Finland and uh, he went to the northernmost parish in the world, widely known fact. And uh, he hung out at the cathedral and he hung out with the bishop. And uh, Edgar, one of the things that he did that really did not make it into his coverage that much, um, and that was sort of my choice because I didn't know how much people would read about it, is he spent a fair amount of time with the bishop and the Lutheran bishops of uh, Finland. The bishop of Helsinki spends a lot of time basically hanging out with the Lutheran bishops of Finland in various kinds of ecumenical dialogues. And so I want to talk about ecumenism because I um, I think when we hear about ecumenism- Speaking of subjects of which we know nothing, yeah, sure. No, no. And maybe we talked about this when, when we interviewed the Cardinal of Sweden too, because it's a similar situation. But when, you know, when we hear about ecumenism, and I said to Edgar, I just don't think American pillar readers are going to want to read that much about ecumenism, because we sort of think that ecumenism is like- um, conversations that have no purpose, right? Like when we hear about this, the conference having ecumenical dialogues or a diocese having an ecumenical dialogue, I think many people sort of say, what's the, why? Like to what end? Um, either the end Anglican of Anglicanorum or- is what I always say. <laughs> Anglicanorum was being ecumenism to your mind? Uh, I was, do, do you know our, our late and much missed um, former canonical professor, Monsignor Tom Green? Yep. A, a lion of the discipline. God rest his soul, much yep. missed. Um, he once asked me if I was going to take an elective he was teaching on ecumenism and canon law, and I said, I've read Anglicanorum Chetibus. Is there much else to say? And <laughs> I think he was genuinely a little wounded by that. <laughs> See, I wish that I had gone to canon. I was not a kid. You weren't a kid when you went to canon law school. So you had much more fun with the faculty. I was like 22. So anything they said, I was like, okay, I don't know anything about the world. I'll just give a talk on Vatican II. Um, 
Okay. So we tend to think about ecumenism in two ways in America, I think. One, that it is sort of this sort of a mutual affirm that ecumenical dialogue, I think a lot of people think of as like, oh, this sort of mutual affirmation circle that isn't doing, that doesn't have much of a purpose. And I think a lot of Catholics are somewhat skeptical of ec ecumenism in that sense. Or ecumenism reduced to political activity. So we, you know, kind of gussy up to the evangelicals so we can work for some political and add extra and, social work. Add extra social work. That's exactly right. And often not even social apostolate so much as um, political advocacy apostolate. Well, I, I didn't mean social work as in social work done by social workers, but work work oriented towards secular society rather than Yeah, that. that's right. So we have common we might perceive that we have common cause with the evangelicals or the Pentecostals or very rarely the Anglicans and Episcopalians. And so we might sort of join up with the like. Interesting I think maybe that you say very rarely the Anglicans. I thought where you were going with this ecumenism thing was the fact that we had a bunch of Anglicans in Rome. Um, no, it's it not. It was where at I'm the end of last actually. week. It's not where I'm going. Oh, ah, okay. Um, but I do. But I do want to talk about that because it's an element of ecumenism. Okay. But um, the point that Edgar made, and the point that the Bishop of Helsinki made to him, is that ecumenism is much more sort of practically necessary for the life of the church in places where Catholics are. A minority, and where Christians are, are a minority, it, and and a big part of the um, Finnish Catholic Lutheran ecumenical dialogue is the need to have places for sacred worship in communities with very small pockets of Catholics and no sacred space. Like the Catholics need to engage, uh, the church needs to engage with uh, you know the the Lutheran bishops, and the pastor needs to engage with the Lutheran pastor because there's a real sort of like very practical and pragmatic dependency upon which ecumenical friendship becomes important and reciprocity. The Bishop of Helsinki, if I remember Edgar's coverage correctly, was consecrated in the Lutheran cathedral. He was because the Catholic cathedral seats only 200 people and they wanted to have something to That's which- barely a J.D. Flynn lecture. <laughs> they wanted to have something to which all the Catholics of Finland could be invited. And so there's this- this necessity, uh, uh, this sort of, but that uh, says something in itself that all the Catholics in Finland can fit in one building. Well, no, Albeit I mean they could have hours, but you know, I think the idea was that they could all be invited, but very few of them were actually able to attend. I, I mean, but they wanted to be able to open the doors to many more people, and the 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 Lutheran church in which they held it held two thousand people, and the Catholic cathedral holds two hundred or um, ten J.D. Flynn lectures. J.D. Flynn lecture is not a great – is no better It's as good as a smoot, and I've had to deal with that for several <laughs> weeks now. <laughs> what I find myself wondering is in a period of institutional disaffiliation in the church in the United States, whether that kind of pragmatic ecumenical engagement might become more important for the church here, whether the, the sort of ecumenical necessity of engagement in Finland might portend something similar for the life of the church here in the United States. Interesting. Unpack that. What what do you see as the potential points of overlap that would make that the case? Because initially what I would say is that Finland has not as a country ever been Catholic in in the history of his existence, I mean, the, the nation of Finland is a relatively modern creation. The Finnish, you know, the, there was the I think it was Archduchy of Finland. Listeners who are better versed in in the geopolitics uh, and history of of the Nordic regions can can correct me, but it's my understanding that Finland as an independent nation is a, is a relatively modern construct, and it was so. previously a Grand Duchy under the Russian Tsar. 
and prior to that had been sort of contested territory with i think the swedes between i think that's right um russia and sweden um so it's never been in the history of its history as a, as a country had a been a catholic country um you know it's not like other countries that have you know used to be really catholic and are now not catholic at all like for example the netherlands or or something like that um whereas the united states has, has had for a long time um it's never been a catholic country but it has had a, a significant demographic and institutional Catholic footprint. Footprint, yeah. And I concede that the um, the institutional footprint of the church in this country is shrinking and shrinking rapidly. But I mean, you put it within the context of you know widespread institutional disaffiliation. I don't think that the church's institutional influence or footprint is shrinking all that much more dramatically than the general trend away from institutional affiliation. Well, so um, I think that's right. Yeah. And I mean, it's more measurable in the church because I mean, you get this very often where you know they say, "Oh, the Catholic Church is the focus of all of this," you know, negative analysis and reporting and focus and everything else, and no one ever talks about you know the Pentecostals or the I don't know um, Methodists or or anything else. And it's like, well, that's because they tend to be too too institutionally disaffiliated from each other to form a block big enough to measure. And so you end up doing things like you invent these categories like quote unquote mainline Protestantism, which is in fact declining far, far faster than Catholicism uh, and things like that. So I, I'm interested to hear from you what you think the circumstances are in the United States that could create a Finnish adjacent situation. Well, that's why I asked you. I, <clears throat> that's, that's why I asked you is because um, precisely this. We, um, the Catholic Church in Finland is actually growing, so it's people increasingly people rich but resource poor. It doesn't have places for sacred worship and things like this. It seems to me that we uh, in the Church in the United States are actually undergoing the inverse um, phenomenon, where we are increasingly resource rich to the point of being able to un not take care of, like insufficiently take care of our very many buildings and institutional attachments, while uh, you know, sort of drawing from a smaller and smaller base of practicing Catholics in order to do so. So that would not be the driver of sort of practical ecumenism for us the same way that we might need something from the large sort of state church with its funding and things like that and, um, you know, sort of depend on their goodwill. But I find myself wondering, are there other ways in which in amid institutional disaffiliation, we might find ourselves more in need of kind of pragmatic ecumenism? And uh, and one idea that I had that I was just thinking about, where are the places where we might find ourselves in need of pragmatic ecumenism, is a point that you made to me a week or two ago, which is that it is very difficult for Catholic institutions of conscience to find appropriate health insurance packages for their employees, um, which maybe you want to say a little bit more about. But I wondered if that might become a place where the church sort of finds herself finding common cause with uh, with other Christians on sort of a practical collaborative effort. If I remember the conversation, I think you're referencing correctly. It was that I I mentioned in passing that it's a reality in the sort of post. I forget the official name of the the post Obamacare world that Catholic institutions, including and the ones that left to mind for me, were were sort of universities, have had a very difficult time in in both providing holistic healthcare coverage for their employees and or students, and at the same time purchasing or providing such coverage in a way that was fully respectful of church teaching and the principles of life. And that there doesn't seem to be even now, all these years later, 
uh, a good fit or a good answer, or certainly um, one that I've seen that is a good fit. And so you end up with different institutions taking different tacks. Some take out health coverage that contains objectionable components, and they just sort of say, well, this is, you know, we can't provide all the things that we need to provide in justice for our employees and, and other dependents. Uh, unless we just sort of swallow the bitter pill of this and we're, you know, we raise legal complaints about that, but you know, it is what it is. And others say, well, if we can't provide fully coherent, morally healthcare coverage for people, we just won't provide it. And, you know, we'll give them a, a stipend or whatever, and they can go and make their own choices like consenting adults effectively and, you know, search for what they can't. Uh, those seem to be the two schools. So that's, if I'm remembering what we were talking about correctly, that was what I was saying. I don't know that we can count on our separated brethren to to come to our aid necessarily or help us act in concert. Because I think while there are probably some areas of obvious overlap and available cooperation, for example, on abortion, uh, there are others that I don't think it's fair to say that we agree with the Protestants or for they example, with us. For example, on contraception. But for I example, on if- contraception and increasingly on issues like um, spousal benefits for same-sex partners, yeah. and uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't even begin to understand where uh, the various Protestant schools and denominations may fall on sort of soi-disant gender reassignment stuff and things like that. I, I have no idea. Neither do I. Yeah, that's a good point. So, if not there, and I think you make a good case that probably not there. Where might, and maybe listeners have different ideas, but are there other places where you think that it might be the case that we will become, by necessity, growing institutional disaffiliation more ecumenical? Or is that just not in the cards for American Catholicism in the way that it is um, for for places like Finland where the church is in a minority and not without the sort of establishment resources? I'm in a cleft stick here. Why? Well, because I have thoughts, but I'm wondering if I can express them in a way that won't get me into trouble. Um, <laughs> you never worry about that. I do occasionally. Um, I, when I get in, when I get myself into trouble, I, I like to do so in a studied and considered way. I don't like to spontaneously do it. Um, Fair. Oh, the hell with it. Uh, I hope not. Um, if, <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I sincerely hope not. If, if, if the Catholic Church in this country finds itself having to rely more and more on practical ecumenism because of uh, shifting circumstances, it will almost certainly be our fault or our failure to address internal problems uh, that will render us basically supplicants uh, in the relationship. And that would be a shame. I I saw, and I'm trying very hard to remember where exactly I saw it, but I remember doing a double take and, you know, sort of double clicking through a couple of times to make sure that the source was reasonably reputable. And I think it was that when it comes to um, Catholics leaving the practice of the faith in this country, particularly those who are first or second generation immigrants, most of them aren't lapsing into no practice at all. They're drifting over to Pentecostalism or evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. usually because, and again, I remember seeing some some numbers that would seem to suggest that something like, not quite two thirds, but like 60% or just under 60% of them report, oh, well, the outreach was just better and they helped me more with the practicalities right. of life. And, you know, it was a little bit more dynamic and seemed to speak to the needs of my life. So um, let me tell you what practical ecumenism looks like for some of those denominations. It looks like, well, let's see if we can get some Catholics to become Pentecostals. Yeah. So if we find ourselves having to go cap in hand to work um, in sort of practical at extra cooperation with them, they're they're doing it with our people and our cash, 
that we have failed to hang on to. So that would represent a, a catechetical failure of monumental proportions on the part of the church in this country, of which I myself, as a member of the church in this country, would be thoroughly ashamed. And with that, let's take a commercial. JD, this episode of the Pillar Podcast this week, we are sponsored by the Southwest Indian Foundation's Catholic Pueblo Revival Internship Program, which is a heck of a mouthful, but I love every single word in that. What is it? Yeah, so this is very cool. So this is a project for which young people are sought to serve as kind of missionaries in the Catholic Diocese of Gallup, one of the um, poorest and most remote dioceses in this country, a diocese populated largely by... um, Indigenous Catholics, Catholics of, um, of of Indigenous tribes, and um, and the boundaries of the Diocese of Gallup being coterminous with the boundaries of uh, of, of reservations. So anyway, these uh, these missionaries who are being uh, asked now to consider applying would perform manual labor, uh, spend a summer performing manual labor to help build the Saint Kateri Rosary Walk, a rosary walk designed to express the witness of St. Kateri Tegawitha and the witness of other indigenous Catholics and the life of the church in the United States. But when you do this work, when you spend a summer working in the hot sun in Gallup, New Mexico, you learn how to use traditional Southwestern building materials and techniques. The idea is to build a rosary walk using the building materials and building techniques of the indigenous people who live in the Diocese of Gallup and, and their communities. So along the way of this rosary walk are these kind of niches, which uh, which missionaries will help to, to construct. Um, it's an aura at labora summer, an invitation to spend time in prayer with a community, um, a, a, a profoundly Catholic community, in a time of sort of intense Catholic discipleship of prayer and work, um, clearing um, space in the desert, and then setting foundations, layering adobe bricks on top of a foundation, setting pine beams into brick structures, putting crosses on top, stuccoing the whole thing with a traditional mixture of straw, sand, and clay, and lime coat on top, and then um, and then setting these niches as uh, as 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 shrine devotional places. So this is a very cool like that sounds incredibly summer, cool. Yeah, I want to summer do that. opportunity of learning. Probably won't let work. me, but my wife won't let me. And I don't know Ed if uh, what they're looking for are a couple of 40-year-old dads like us. I think the invitation of the Southwest well, Indian Foundation- Well, definitely not you. You injure yourself all the time. I um, know, that's true. I'd be afraid to let you onto a building project. I think it's an invitation for young people. Bill McCarthy, CEO of the Southwest Indian Foundation, says this is a totally unique program which provides unique leadership training for a lifetime, at the same time building something beautiful for Our Lady and St. Kateri that will last for generations. I mean, this is, if you're a, a young person and you want May to spend I- the summer- May I just pick up on something? Yes. You keep saying young person. This is not for all young people. This is this is specifically for college-aged men, as I understand. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Thank you. Um, so this is this is this is for the lads. This is young men only need to apply. And I think that is, you know, I think it's quite cool, actually. If you're a young man who wants to spend the summer working in the desert. In much more prosaic circumstances when I was um college age, I spent a summer uh helping remodel a parish in the Netherlands who, you know, that had no money and but had a very dynamic priest and just sort of solicited young people from all over Europe to, you know, come and camp out and, you know, help dig, you know, dig new drainage ditches and all and all sorts of things. I wish I was doing it under a New Mexico sky and constructing an entire shrine to Saint Catherine. Yeah, I mean so it's really cool. Like spend the summer from the end of May to the middle of August praying, living, working, building. And, the stars uh, alone. And maybe, all right? of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, this just seems – and the cool thing is you get paid. Spend the summer getting Wait, paid, sorry. praying, living, working, building. I missed that part. You yes, get paid? You get, you get paid. It is uh, – actually, the full name of the thing is the Catholic Pueblo Revival Paid Internship Internship Program. 
to emphasize that for all of this, for which I would pay for the privilege, you actually get paid. That's amazing. Any any college age, which I assume is fairly loosely defined in here, um, young man who doesn't have a crack at this, I think you're missing you're missing a trick here, guys. Yeah. So here's what you get. Free housing, most meals, a stipend for the entire summer of $5,000 if you are selected to spend the summer praying, working, and living under the New Mexico sky. Applications can be filled out at stkateryrosarywalk.org. That's stkateryrosarywalk.org. There's a, a link to that in our show notes. And this is, guys, just do this. I mean, this is cool. Yeah, this is a no-brainer. And we're back, Ed. Welcome back to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. We were talking about ecumenism. We were talking about my um, pending embarrassment at the uh, at a lecture for which I am not prepared. And uh, now, Ed, we are going to talk about something that I want to learn more about, which is uh, an announcement from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, excuse me, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, this week that uh, doesn't make much sense to me because the DDF, it seems to me, made an announcement that said, our policies with regard to adjudicating certain kind of uh, delictual cases are not changing. Uh, is that right? Not so much that um, they aren't changing as they haven't changed. Haven't changed. They haven't changed. They issued a clarification. I mean- Tell us the uh, whole so, thing. Well, on Tuesday, the the Dicaster for the Doctrine of the Faith put out a clarification in which it said, um, just so everyone remembers, there there is such a thing as clerical sexual abuse. Clerical sexual abuse can be carried out against what- Canon law defines as vulnerable adults. Vulnerable adults is defined in Vos Estes Lex Mundi, the Pope's 2019 motu proprio, uh, as, as having a very broad definition of who is a vulnerable adult or who could be considered a vulnerable adult. But we at the DDF have our own definition of vulnerable adults for the purposes of our proper law, which tr- strictly deals with clerical sexual abuse involving minors or those equivalent to them in law. And we are not dealing with the Vosestes cases that involve other kinds of vulnerable adults. That's pretty much all it said. And a lot of people took notice of this, and a lot of people said, ooh, what's changed? And I mean, nothing has changed. Although I can understand why some people immediately leapt to the conclusion that something has changed, because quite often these days when somewhere like the DDF or the Dicaster for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments puts out a quote unquote clarification. What they actually mean is we're changing something. You know, we're we're going to clarify that what what we've previously said or you know what was previously the rules is no longer the rules. We're going to do something different. But that's not the case here. This is actually a clarification restating what, what has been the case, what has been the case for many years now, uh, and was was very explicitly delineated in several different places in in 2021 when Pope Francis promulgated. The new book six of the Code of Canon Law, when Vosestes Lux Mundi was, uh, I think, reissued. Was it reissued in twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two? I can't remember. Uh, but anyway, in twenty twenty one, the DDF or the the DDF put out a vani makum on how to instruct penal cases that were reserved to its competence, in which it specifically said, by the way, vulnerable adult, don't send it to us unless it meets our very very narrow definition of someone who's equivalent in law to a minor. So they, they've put out this clarification, and once you've understood that nothing has actually changed, and this is this is that rarest of birds from the Vatican, a clarification that actually just clarifies what has always been the case, uh, it rather poses the question, why? why, why, For whose benefit are they clarifying this? Where, where lies the confusion? Um, and I think it's pretty fair to say the confusion probably lies everywhere apart from the poor benighted 
canonists at the DDF who keep being sent cases that aren't under their competence. Do you think that's fair? Yes, I think that is exactly what's happening. Yeah, um, because of course, there is this sort of impression, everyone understands that the DDF is sort of the supreme penal tribunal in the church, at least for some the most serious of crimes, and that's true, crimes against the sacraments, crimes against yeah. the faith, crimes against um, minors, and those equivalent to law against them. But of course, the reason they handle that one <laughs> Um, as explained by Pope Benedict XVI when he was in office, is that the sexual abuse of a minor by a cleric is not just a grotesque moral failing and sexual delict, but it's also a crime against the faith. That so grievous is such an action by a cleric that it, it should be considered a crime not just against the the individual, but against the faith. Um, and that's all they handle. They don't handle all these these other ones. Um but nevertheless, there's a lot of confusion around this. People have have got the idea that if there's a particularly scandalous instance of sexual abuse, it must be the CDF's problem to handle. And why, you know, if, if someone needs laicizing, why hasn't the DDF laicized them? And I, and I think you see this confusion particularly around the case of Marco Rupnik. And he's, uh, I should say, Father Marco Rupnik, for he is still, um, despite being a a convicted canonical criminal of the worst variety, um, he is still a, a, a priest in good standing. Uh, yeah, I mean, Cardinal at least in terms of his home diocese in Slovenia. Slovenia, it's given him faculties. Yeah, does he? He does have faculties. I can remember that. I don't think he does now. I think after Pope Francis waived the statute of, we'll we'll get into this. We'll hang on. We're going to this. We're putting the cart before the horse here. Um, but I think in how people have followed and reacted to the Rupnik case, uh, it it has fed into this impression that if it's really bad, it's the CDF's mess to deal with or the CDF's mess to clean up. And in Marco Rupnik's case, it is, but not for the reasons that people tend to tend to assume. Um, and it's it's fed into this false assumption that, you know, well, if it's really horrific sexual abuse, it must be the CDF's competence. Um, and the reason is this. So for example, the the serial allegations facing Rupnik, and I think at this point, I mean, the Jesuits before they kicked him out concluded that these were basically true. Independent investigators have said, yeah, this looks – I mean, pretty much the only people who have queried the veracity of the accusations against Marco Rupnik that he groomed and violently sexually abused uh, a succession of religious sisters over a period of decades. The only people who have questioned that at this point are the Diocese of Rome, I think, um, which we're not going to get into now. <laughs> We've discussed that on the show previously. But you know that is horrific, but it's actually not proper to the DDF generally speaking. Is this clerical sexual abuse? Yes. Is it the clerical sexual abuse of a vulnerable person or persons? Yes. Is it the DDF's competence? No, not because on the it's strength not of clerical sexual abuse on the, uh, on, uh, it's not clerical sexual abuse of a vulnerable person as defined by the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, which is again, which is one equivalent in law to a yeah, minor, right. someone who habitually lacks the use of reason. Correct. Right. But the problem is the DDF got Marco Rupnik's case anyway. Right. And they got Marco well, Rupnik's case- Well, because of solicitation- because he was accused and convicted by the DDF in 2021 of basically a crime against the sacrament of confession, of attempting right. to absolve an, uh, an accomplice in a sin against the sixth commandment in the sacrament of confession. And that is reserved to the DDF because it is a crime against the sacrament. And I think it, that it's the practice of the CDF still. Uh, I know it has been, but I think it's still the practice of the CDF that effectively, once they're competent for one delict, they in principle handle the other related delicts. That is the that is the general canonical principle and praxis is that yeah. if you 
if you are the the higher tribunal that is exclusively comp- competent for the most egregious accusation, in this case, a crime against the sacrament of confession, yep. you get all the connected lesser crimes too. Yeah. And so what happened in 2021 is Mark Rupnik was very briefly and very quietly, so quietly no one noticed, excommunicated and then rehabilitated. And at the same time, the DDS said, look, we've convicted him of attempting to absolve an accomplice in a sin against the sixth commandment, and we have convicted him and we have excommunicated him. Um, but all of these other accusations that have come along with that file that he was blasphemously sexually abusing religious sisters over a period of decades, uh, the statute of limitations has run on right. those. And we don't have um, – I, I, I want to pick my words very carefully here. It has not been determined by the proper authority to waive the statute of limitations on those cases, and thus we cannot proceed Which was either Feria Corta, the sort of um – the ordinary meaning of the membership of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith or the Roman Pontiff. Yes, we don't know which. Right. Anyway, when Marco Rupnik's crimes came to public light, there was considerable outrage. There was considerable criticism, heavy criticism against the CDF for not having made more of his conviction and excommunication for the crime of attempted absolution of an accomplice. And I would say even more criticism of the DDF for not having waived the canonical statute of limitations and proceeding to laicize him for his other crimes. Um, in fact, and in law, uh, it was the prerogative and the responsibility of the Society of Jesus, of which he was then a member, to pursue his laicization for various other things uh, if they had so wanted to, but they they chose not to. They were competent to prosecute him for various um, acts against authority in the society of Jesus, basically his refusal to conform to any kind of legitimate injunction against keeping certain company or staying in certain places and not going to other places. Um, they they expelled him from the Jesuit order, but they declined to pursue laicization against him, even though canon law makes it very clear that's not the DDF's thing to do. That's on the society to pursue with the relevant to Castor of the Roman Curia, which would be in this case, Dickel Cell. Um, anyway, Mark Rupnik then you know, gets incarnated famously in his home diocese, is given faculties, re, you know, given basically a blank check to carry on in ministry in any way he sees fit as a sort of absent priest from that diocese in Slovenia. There's another gigantic public scandal over this, and Pope Francis then finally waves prescription, that is the statute of limitations, refers the case back to the DDF and says, all right, go get him. And we're still waiting for the results of that. But I think his laicization at this point is inevitable. All this by way of saying uh, the DDF, you know, exists in the sort of zeitgeist in the public perception in the, um, you know, in in the in the general consciousness as being the ones and the only ones whose job it is to deal with serious issues of clerical sexual misconduct and abuse. And of course, they're not. The Rubnick case is, strictly speaking, not the DDF's problem, according to the letter of the law, that they've inherited it because they had um, to deal with his his case and the complaint against him for a crime against the sacrament of confession. And so they've inherited all the other cases that come along with it. But generally speaking, Rupniks uh, should not be prosecuted by the DDF. They should be prosecuted by their religious community or their, their diocese. Diocese, right. Mm-hmm. But I, I think um, despite the DDF on a make of 2021, despite the new book six of the Code of Canon Law, despite a lecture by Archbishop Shikluna 
Archbishop of Malta and Adjunct Secretary of the to the USCCB, a lecture to the USCCB through which many in twenty twenty one, yeah, right. Which mm-hmm. I watched the entire rest of the press room sleep through his address while I sat there writing furiously, saying, "This is seriously important. Why is no one paying attention?" Um, telling the U.S. bishops, "You guys are on the hook for this. You you have to prosecute clerical sexual abuse of vulnerable adults at the diocesan level." And if you don't, you can be subject to a vocestis prosecution yourselves for you know basically being derelict in your duty. It says so right here in the law, and it says so right here where Pope Francis wrote a whole apostolic constitution on penal law saying, you need to do this. Um, that's still not what's happening. At least that's not my sense talking to two guys at the DDF and even in other dicasters of the Roman Curia yeah. who get sent cases um, for their review you know, where bishops are trying basically to get a guy on, on other charges – and have him laicized. The the operating procedure in many places, and this isn't a particular comment about, you know, the U.S. diocese in general. Uh, still less saying all U.S. dioceses. This is you know a sort of general global impression, is that many places it's just like, well, I got I want to get rid of this guy, so I'll I'll write down everything bad I've heard about him and put it in an envelope and send it to Rome, and they can figure out whose responsibility this is. But I'll start with the DDF because you know. The, in the worst case scenario, it's theirs to handle, and I don't want to be accused of having not sent it to them. So I'll send it to them, and if they don't want it, they can just put it in the mail to whoever should have it. Um, so that, that's kind of how I read this clarification, is that this is the DDF saying, everybody stop trying to give us your work. Uh, you right. know, we have a very narrow... And not very many people, like a, a very small. Well, that's the, the thing, thing is they're yeah. ridiculous. Their disciplinary Understand. section yeah, is right. crushed under the workload. Right. Like they, they right. are only supposed to handle yeah. the absolute worst of the worst cases. Uh-huh. And they're still underwater because they're understaffed and, you know, the backlog is huge. And, you know, that that's how I read this. Yeah, I, I think that's right. As a, a reminder to dioceses to do their job and a reminder to bishops that clergy, there's a specific set of jobs that is that, that falls into the purview of clergy. And and Dickel Cell. And Dickel Cell. Yep. Don't forget Dickel Cell. <laughs> well, Ed, it's so funny that you say that. Because Why is it so funny that I say that? It's so funny that you say that because um, we have come almost to the end of our show here. But Ed, we are uh, you, you have brought up the Dicastery for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life a number of times. Tickle cell. Uh, yeah, uh-huh, in, in this conversation. And so it seemed to me appropriate, Ed, if you don't mind, that uh, we might play a little game. Oh, you have a game? Called Dickel Cell Trivia. Dog my cats, JD. I did not see this coming. How exciting. I haven't played a game in weeks. <laughs> I know. And this one I'm making up on the fly because I'm so oh, entertained oh, by right. you what being could go wrong? entertained. Um, what could go wrong? But Ed, uh, are you ready to play a little – I'm going to call it sickle cell because I'm more comfortable saying Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Society's Apostolic Life. I don't understand why you hate the Pope. Vita Consecrata trivia ed no let's talk about this why do you why do you hate pope francis why do you resist his authority he, he promulgates this big beautiful apostolic constitution <laughs> called predicati evangelium formally restructuring the roman curia and renaming the former congregation for institutes of consecrated life and societies of apostolic life to be dickel cell and and you just won't use the name <laughs> why do you why do you want to call it the why do you want to call it the ddf why not call it the the holy office of the roman and universal inquisition what's you know yeah i often do in fact fair enough Okay. Uh, Ed, um, let's get ready for a Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life trivia. Ed, what document of the Second Vatican Council governs the adaptation and renewal of religious life? 
I have no idea. Unlike you, I am not a well-read man on the documents of Vatican II. I read Sacrosanctum Concilium and the Magentium once a year uh, to stay fresh, but I have, I have no idea. I, I'm surprised to learn there was a document treating Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life in, in the Second Vatican Council. Which one was it? Please. Um, Perfecta Caritatis. That's wonderful. That's what an appropriate title. Could you talk about this for an hour? <laughs> Ed, what is unique about the current secretary of the of the Dicastery for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life? Well, he's a he's a Capuchin. Is oh, he not? Uh, not no? since twenty twenty three. Ah. What, when Archbishop Carvalho, well, then I don't who, know who the current who no- prefect is. Clearly, ah. I'm still going on old intelligence. I, I, I thought it was that most excellent Capuchin chap that I met once or twice. Yeah, actually, he was an OFM. I just looked up. Ah. But uh, what's unique about the current secretary of the Dicastery for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life Ed, is that is she it a lay brother? Oh, she is a, it's a lady. She. she is a woman. Uh, ah, Sister Simona Brambia, uh, um, uh, uh, a sister of the Consolata missionaries. Well, that's. Great. Does she exercise ordinary jurisdiction in that function? No, she's a secretary. So no. Oh, secretary. I, yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Right, I, she's I not the prefect. prefect. And secretary there doesn't mean she takes the notes and says good evening. No, no, no. It means you're basically means the executive the of the office. Right. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's exactly right. I also would have accepted she as a nurse. I believe she is probably the first secretary of the Congregation of Institutes and Congregated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life to be a nurse in its history. I'll buy that. Yeah, I'll, I, 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 I would say that's more likely than not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I know in, almost nothing about this subject, so. In 1587, what pontiff founded the Sacred Con- Congregation for Consultation about Regulars, which is the precedent to today's Dickel Cell? Boniface VIII. Which, let's make it easier, Ed. In 1587, which Sixtus founded the Sacred Congregation the for fifth. Consultation? Sixtus, ooh. Close. Fourth? Sixtus the fourth. You got it, Ed. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> this is the worst trivia game that has ever been. It truly been. is. I, I, I admit I had it coming though, so that's fine. You carry on. <laughs> Ed, which document, uh, which document gave the the dicastery uh, for institutes of consecrated life and societies of apostolic life its present name? Ah, uh, that would be Predicata even. Hey, hey, ding, 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 ding. And Ed, which pontiff changed the name to Congregation for Religious in 1908? Ah, oh, well, there we go. That'd be um, Benedict the Fifteenth. Benedict the oh, close. Fourteenth. Back up just a little bit. Pius the Tenth. Ed, well done. Why are you looking I at me you. like that? I'm, I'm, I'm just sad. I'm this sad at myself. Game is I... terrible. You can't be sad about this game. This is a silly game. Ed, you'll get this one. Um, which pontiff changed the name from Congregation for Religious to Con- Congregation for Religious and Secular Institutes? Congregation for Religious and Secular Institutes. Oh, that sounds like a Paul VI move. Paul VI. Well done, Ed. Which pontiff changed the name to Congregations for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life? Oh, that would be JP2 with Pastor Bonus. JP2 with Pastor Bonus. You are doing really, Badly. really, really well. No, I'm uh, doing really, really badly. No, I'm like three for all. 20 right now. I think you're doing pretty darn good. Would you like one more? Yeah, please. Okay. The building which houses the Congregation for Religious is bordered by two streets, I think. 
Yeah. <laughs> the Via della Conciliazione. Yeah. And Ed, this inspired street. Inspired street? Yes, this. JD's trivia puns are never as helpful street. as he intends real, them to be. Real ruach of a of a street, Ed. This all right, all right. Hang on. So many, there's only so many pigeons on this street, I find. Oh, I know the one you're talking about. Um, is that? It's like oh. the third street. When you think about streets, it's like the third one. It proceeds from the one and the other. Uh, and with the one and the other, it is worshipped and glorified. Oh, the Porto so Santo Spirito, Ed. Good job. I was going to go with Porto Angelica. Okay. <laughs> that was my clues were bad there. Well, my geography isn't great, and my knowledge of <laughs> of Dickel Cell is even worse. So <laughs> I don't know what we were expecting. Game. I don't know what we were expecting either. I just wanted to give you a little something. That seems fair. To close out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and who brought who's who sponsored this episode of the Pillar? This episode was sponsored by the Southwest Indian Foundation's Catholic Pueblo Revival Internship Program, which is for young, fairly young college age men. It's a paid internship program where you can learn traditional building techniques, do a bit of aura and labora all summer long under the Gallup New Mexico desert sky, all in service to our Lord, the church, and building a way of the rosary for our Lady and for St. Kateri Tekawitha. Check it out at stkaterirosarywalk.org. Sounds really cool. Yeah, it does. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, JD Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Gaudium et Spes Con. 